Hi guys, Nick here. Just a quick note up front. Today on the show, we have a really special guest. Dr. Tracy Stein is a clinical psychologist and a health psychologist who works in New York City. She's a professor at Teachers College Columbia, and she specializes in clinical hypnosis. So we had her on the show to talk about hypnosis, which is a topic I think um, a lot of people have vaguely heard of, but have a lot of misconceptions about. So we dive into all sorts of good stuff on that topic. also, there was a little bit of audio trouble, so um, early on, the first few minutes of the show, the audios can be a little bit um, wonky at spots, so please bear with us. It, uh, it clears up um, partway through the show. Uh, with that, uh, enjoy this interview with Dr. Tracy Stein. Hi, everyone, and welcome to What Would My Shrink Say? a podcast where you get inside the heads of a couple psychologists and see life through their eyes. You'll never be the same. Dr. Tracy Stein, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. We're excited to have you. Um, So you are an expert in hypnosis. You're a clinical psychologist and a therapist, um, and you do hypnosis. So I, I think a lot of people, myself included, have some pretty strange, probably incorrect ideas about what hypnosis really is. So I was thinking maybe you could start us off with some kind of common misconceptions about hypnosis and start to kind of clarify things a little bit. Yeah. Oh, there are a ton of um, there are a ton of myths. So it's really good that you asked that question. So that mind control and that um, it's dangerous. That you will be made to do something you don't want to do. This is sleep or sleep-like. And for most people, it isn't. And I'll explain that the small percentage where you can go very deep and it might feel like sleep, but it is qualitatively different. Um, and another one is that you just be weak-minded. Uh, that, you know, you'd have to be unintelligent to be hypnotized. And, and that's not true at all. So lots of, lots of myths. I see. So it's not some um, guy in a costume, you know, waving an amulet in front of your eyes, uh, making you do all sorts <laughs> of strange things. <laughs> no, but again, like I think of those old vampire movies that my mother used to love to watch where there's this, you know, guy in this cape waving, you know, a watch or, um, you know, saying, look into my eyes and some falls into a and then something terrible happens. I think that's what a lot of people think hypnosis is. And it really isn't and it shouldn't be. And if you encounter that, you should run. Gotcha. <laughs> Tracy, I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, are, are some people more susceptible to, the, to hypnosis than others or, or more receptive to it somehow? Definitely. And there's uh, more research going on looking at uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, kind of looking at what is different about the, the brains of people who are more hypnotizable. And there seems connectivity between some areas of the brain and decreased connectivity between others when somebody who is highly hypnotically suggestible is undergoing hypnosis. And so what that does is it allows people to pay greater attention to the suggestions and the things they want to attend to and decrease attention to everything else. And that's really important, right? Because if you are somebody who's really anxious and you have a lot of anxious thoughts and you're doing hypnosis to be more relaxed, you want to be able to turn down the volume on distracting and often inaccurate thoughts. I mean, kind of like with CBT, 
you'd want to be to reframe and refocus your awareness and make different choices as a result. And hypnosis can help people do that. But people have greater aptitude to do that, can decrease their self-consciousness at the time so that they're not, you know, we, we can, our attention can be focused all over the place, state of enhanced absorption in something and attention to something, enhanced receptivity to hypnotic suggestion and awareness or attention to pretty much everything else for that time. That makes sense. So it almost sounds like hypnosis is just a a kind of a form of training or kind of controlling your attention. Um, Is that fair? Or do do you have a a kind of a specific definition of hypnosis that you give to people? So I tell them pretty much what I just told you that, you know, I mean, the, the most common one would be increased attention in and absorption in something specific, but it's that aptitude too. So some people can do that much more easily, but the process of hypnosis is directing someone's attention to specific suggestions. So for example, um, you know, a lot of the research that's come out in the last several years has been on hypnosis for pain control. And so when, when people are really in attentive to their pain or overwhelmed by their pain, it winds up taking up their whole mental screen in a way. And yet, usually there are other parts of the body that feel comfortable or feel neutral. So when somebody is in a hypnotic trance state, you can amplify their awareness of and absorption in the areas that feel comfortable or neutral. So like the lobe of an ear or the tip of your nose versus maybe the foot that's really sore but you're more receptive to those kinds of hypnotic suggestions as well if you're in a trance state. Gotcha. So what is, um, can you give us a brief example of like a a client who might come in to work with you um, and like what it would literally look like in the room if someone was watching you guys, what would it look like for you to kind of put someone into a hypnotic state? So first of all, I educate them about what it is and what it isn't. Beforehand, we discuss their goals and and even the imagery that I might use and just make sure that it's a fit for them. And then if it's formal hypnosis, I might do a formal induction. So that's something that just helps people get into that deeper, more hypnotically um, receptive state. So it could be something like counting back slowly from 10 to 1. And with each number back, you'll feel more relaxed, going deeply within and letting go of everything else for the time being. So I might say something like that and use a variety of hypnotic devices to help them um, shift their awareness and and make it deeper in just for example, um, your unconscious really loves things like symbol and imagery and metaphor wordplay, changing your pacing can help somebody become um, more deeply entranced. Um, You can have them make a gesture that they would pair with the desired state that they achieve. It kind of reminds me almost of um, biofeedback or any other operant conditioning too, where you would kind of bring your attention to that desired state and solidify it with something else. You know, in cognitive behavioral therapy, we'd call it higher order conditioning or second order conditioning. But you would give them suggestions also for when the hypnosis is over, but when they're out in the real world, so that it's like, again, say if somebody's anxious, 
a simple, almost unconscious act of men four finger together. That's something that I would commonly suggest to someone or that they can place one hand in the other. Those are very normal gestures. But even without thinking about it, that may trigger that relaxed response more quickly. Gotcha. So it's, it, it, yeah. So and, and hypnosis marries well with a lot of B. So you can absolutely bring cognitive behavioral therapy elements and guided imagery. Mindfulness really well with more doing that. Um, even virtual reality. There are people looking at um, virtual reality for things like burn pain. I see. So when you, once you kind of induce a hypnotic state, um, as you just described, what, what happens, you know, in your session, what, what do you do once you kind of successfully, once somebody gets into a state like that? So I will, um, so statements that call to mind the thing the person wants to achieve and the thing, and maybe the things they want to release. So I've worked with a lot of people who want to quit smoking or have a driving phobia. So in that very hypnotically suggestible state, what I will avoid doing is using wording that calls to mind the thing I want them not to attend to. So if I'm working with somebody who has chronic pain, I won't use words like pain, you know, trauma or worry. I will use the words, language that calls to mind what they want to cultivate. So enhanced disease. Hmm. But you'll, you know, you'll often see people using metaphors like, you know, somebody has to complete and they're procrastinating. Well, there are lots of metaphors that you can use to help people imagine completing a journey or taking the first steps. Being um, pleasantly surprised and grateful to find that it's already done. So there's a lot of time distortion you can use in hypnosis as well to have somebody experience in a multi-sensory way the it already achieve something they want to achieve. Because most of the time people will say, I can't, I won't be able to, I can imagine doing this, but all kinds of things. And once they've imagined it, it, it takes a lot of the worry and apprehension and thing out of the way because in their minds, they've already done it. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Um, I think a lot of times uh, clients do struggle sometimes just kind of wrapping their mind around um, um, a particular situation or a stressor. Um, and, and, and in the beginning, they're really kind of um, dumbfounded as to how they might even approach that thing. But it, it sounds like what you're saying is that hypnosis might actually help them start um, wrapping their mind around it, so to speak, or imagining what those outcomes might look like, the desired outcomes that they might be pursuing. Absolutely. You know, for things like, um, say, like driving phobia, part of what we'll do is have somebody do kind of this desensitization where I'll walk them through, but in a more hypnotically suggestible way, um, step that they take before they actually even get in the car and notice the feelings that they're having and the thoughts they're having and use some hypnotic kind of device or metaphor to help them turn down the volume on those things or look at the worry from a place of easy and a pleasant attachment or imagine taking it and putting it in a box and putting that on a shelf somewhere for the time being. And then, you know, by the time we're done with the session, they actually rehearsing really comfortable. 
and seeing that journey come to a happy completion and feeling so proud that they've accomplished something that they really want to accomplish. And, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, wow, I can't believe that was so easy. Mm. So the hypnosis actually allows them to uh, imagine that thing or, or approach that, that stressor um, from a more relaxed, comfortable state rather than the state of anxiety they might be predisposed to in, in that situation. Is that, is that accurate? Right. The thing that, that I want to be clear about is that hypnosis often, it doesn't have to, but it, it, it mostly does, but it's not the same thing as imagination. And there's actually some research showing that um, hypnotically induced pain. So you can, you can hypnotically induce something you don't want. I think many of us do it all the time. But in this study, what we're saying is that when they looked at people um, in these different conditions, hypnotically induced pain looked very similar to whereas imagined pain did not. It looked qualitatively different from both hypnotically induced and, and actual. The thing I think is important about that is that hypnosis is a much more intense and absorbing and active kind of experience than just kind of a fleeting imagination about something or fleeting thought about something. And, you know, and we all kind of give ourselves all kinds of hypnotic suggestions all the time anyway without even realizing it. So becoming more mindful of the self-talk we have can really help us change things for the better once we know how to do that. So it sounds like you obviously in sessions with clients will help induce a hypnotic state for them. But in your work, do you kind of train people how to do that on their own, how to, how to induce a hypnotic state for themselves? Yeah, definitely. And that's a great question. So all hypnosis really is self-hypnosis. You know, people's willingness to participate in hypnosis and positive expectancy can help. And then, you know, just by teaching them to get into a more hypnotically receptive state, either with their breathing or you can teach them something very simple like that, the eye roll technique, which is really just looking up into the top of your head with your eyes, which is a little bit awkward, but it works, and then dropping your eyelids down and then releasing your eyes and breathing. So that would be one hmm. quick way to do that. But, but just you know, mentally counting down or using imagery of your own, that resonates with you, like walking down a staircase or strolling down a hill into a really pleasant, natural environment. People can use um, pre-recorded imagery that they create or that they can get on iTunes or at other places and just dedicate time to doing some self-hypnosis. And that's really important. It's kind of like if you go see a trainer once a week at the gym, it's not that that's not helpful, but if you're working out using what you've learned on your own in the meanwhile, you're going to see better results. And I think that's the same with hypnosis. Yeah, sure. Therapy in general, I, I use that exact metaphor with my clients. Um, as you were talking, you know, it was making me think of when um, one of the things I love the most actually about watching the Olympics in particular among sports is that you often get to see the athletes before their competition. So you see them kind of walking around or sitting around in the locker room. And sometimes you get to see them in these little like rituals or routines that they do. And I, I, I'm wondering, do you, when you see, if you've ever seen that, do you think part of what they're doing there is kind of some sort of hypnotic induction? Definitely. I mean, rituals can help us get into a different state of mind any 
way, whether it's a religious ritual or just something completely secular, but um, very focused on achieving a specific outcome. And athletes routinely use things like positive visualization um, and all kinds of other things that can induce a self-hypnotic state anyway. But I read, I was reading something, I totally forget the athletes who were mentioned in the article, but there were a few articles that came out in the last few years talking about athletes who um, not only routinely use self-hypnotic techniques, they might have referred to it as visualization, but also who, if they were in inclement weather and couldn't rehearse, couldn't do practice runs before a big event, would do them in their minds. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's actually really common and really effective. Well, in, in a book I was reading lately that uh, I believe you're the author of, we'll go ahead and plug your, <laughs> plug your book here, um, The Everything Guide to Integrative <laughs> Pain Management. Um, you also talked about how um, we find ourselves sometimes in something similar to a hypnotic trance just in our everyday lives as we go through things that are very routine or uh, monotonous that our, that our minds can kind of enter a, a trance-like state. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, things like jogging. I, I don't know if you guys are joggers. I'm an infrequent jogger these days, but it is very potentially trance-inducing. And I actually feel like I can go farther if I get into that particular mindset. But anything rhythmic, anytime when your focus is more on the movie in your mind than what's around you, um, when people are driving, they get in trances all the time. And, you know, that experience of having driven for like five minutes as you think about, you know, some event you just left or a conversation you have to have with somebody and you don't want to or that you had and that was great or whatever it is. But it becomes a very vivid movie in your mind, even though another part of you is actually driving the car. And you might snap out of it and say, oh, my God, what, I was, what, what happened? How did I even keep the car on the road? But, you know, our minds are pretty amazing. And that happens in movie theaters all the time. It happens when people are engrossed in a really good book. Um, those are types of everyday trances. So people move in and out of those multiple times a day, every day. Mm. I like that. So um, Tracy, in, in your opinion, what, what are the most useful applications of hypnosis? You mentioned pain management. Um, for one, that that's kind of a, a hot topic right now. What else? are applicable uses for hypnosis? So a whole range of things. Like medically, there's um, some good data on hypnosis for IBS. Um, people can use hypnosis to minimize nausea related to medical procedures or chemotherapy. It's been used to help with itch, um, with a lot of dermatologic conditions, with, uh, I heard, David Spiegel, who's at Stanford, who's like a huge guy in the hypnosis world, he was giving a talk and mentioned the use of hypnosis for non-epileptic seizures. So a lot of things we wouldn't think about, hypnosis is helpful for, but certainly things that, like I mentioned, habit change, anxiety, um, making behavior changes that a part of you really wants to make, but another part of you might have a difficult time making, like starting an exercise program or losing weight or eating better, or doing less of something that you really want to stop doing. Part of you wants to stop doing it, but another part may not be ready, like smoking cessation. So I've had actually a lot of success with that. I mean, more, the most dramatic thing is probably when somebody comes in and 
one session is enough to lead to a huge shift in behavior like quitting smoking. But for most people, it would take maybe a little bit longer. It really depends on somebody's readiness and how hypnotizable they are. So some of these seems, things are related to, to issues where there might be some ambivalence um, about the behavior change itself? Sure. So what, what I do is I tend to frame people's, quote, undesirable behaviors as a type of tool. Because what happens is the person usually tends to beat themselves up about having developed this bad habit, whether it's smoking or they're drinking too much or they're eating too much junk food. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we pick up the habits we have for what seemed like good reasons at the time. So the challenge is the mature, very conscious part of us might say, I don't need to be eating a pint of ice cream every night because it's really not good for me. Or, you know, smoking is bad for these 25 reasons. But another part might say, but we need this and it feels really comforting. And what will I do if I don't have this? And the problem is then even if you faithfully follow some behavior change program, there might be a part of you that's more vulnerable to relapse. And in hypnosis, you can actually address those different parts of the self as if they're actors on a stage or um, collaborators at a meeting. So you can use a lot of hypnotic devices that help somebody get more in touch with the part of them that might not be ready. And you can actually have those parts of the self dialogue with each other, and it can be very effective. Mm, kind of a way to explore ambivalence then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and get everybody on board or enough on board. So um, even with people who just have a lot of negative, negative self-talk, like I did a talk the other day and was talking about the inner critic versus the inner ally. And some people became very aware of the fact that, you know, their inner critic, they feel like protects them from something like messing up or getting out of line, or makes them follow through on things. And so if there's a part of you that believes you need this particular tool, it's going to be much harder to make that desired behavior change. Sure, that makes sense. And it's a way to almost validate the utility of that undesirable tool, um, because it did kind of start for some reason that maybe it may have been useful. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, sometimes, you know, hypnotically or just with guided imagery, you can have that inner ally take up some of that responsibility and point out the other tools that the person actually has developed over time, but may not be thinking of or using as much. And then that part that's dependent on the tool doesn't have to cling to it so much. Um, Tracy, so how, um, obviously, you know, it's one of the interesting things about hypnosis is that most of us have such a poor, even conceptualization of what it is, but it, yet it seems to be applicable to so many different, I mean, how many of us don't have issues where we're kind of ambivalent about and what part of us wants to do it and part of us uh, is resistant. So I can, I can see this really being applicable to a lot of people. Um, so if, if for, you know, some of our listeners say who are, who are, have an idea of, you know, whether it's exercise or smoking cessation or pain and they think, yeah, I want to give this a shot. Like wh- how do you go about finding someone who's qualified to kind of help them get started with hypnosis? So that's a great question. The, the golden rule is basically you want to choose somebody who is certified by a reputable organization, but also who would be qualified to treat the thing that you want to treat 
even without using hypnosis. So, you know, if you are experiencing, you know, some, especially in, with medical things, you, you want, or, or whether it's that or it's something in the realm of psychotherapy, you want to see somebody who can work with you with hypnosis if that's what you want to try. But if the hypnosis didn't work for you, they would have another way to be legitimately helpful to you. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, um, their website is ASCH.net. They require at least a master's level degree um, and somebody has to have a license in whatever field they're coming from and they have to be in good standing with their professional organization because you want somebody who is bound to some sort of ethical and competency standards. And I, and I think that's the right way to go. You don't want to go to somebody who's just done a weekend training or has watched a lot of YouTube videos and now says, well, I know how to do hypnosis. They may, but they also aren't going to be that helpful if you're in that very small percentage of people who might not do well with hypnosis. I mean, it's, it's largely very safe, but you actually want somebody who's a competent professional just generally and with regard to hypnosis. Great. That's really practical um, kind of advice. So I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, where is someplace people can go to kind of learn more about you and what you do? And um, is there anything you, you kind of want, want people to know about? So I am, um, you know, I have several audio self-hypnosis and meditation programs. They can listen to audio samples for free if they want on iTunes or at healthjourneys.com. My website is drtracystein.com and it's Tracy with an I. And um, I have a Facebook and Twitter account. So I post health-related stuff uh, pretty frequently. So you can check me out there as well. Awesome. Well, That's thank great. you so much, Tracy. We really appreciate it. Thank yes, you for thank having you. me. Oh, of course.